Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. For his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, that through the knowledge of him we may be, uh, we may be called to glory and virtue, that through these he has given to us his great and magnificent promises, that we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. Before we open God's word today, let's bow our heads and ask his guidance and direction on our study. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have revealed it to us and that in your plan, the way in which you did that was through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that he revealed your word to the writers of Scripture and he oversaw the way in which they wrote and how they wrote to guarantee that it would be without error. But you, the Father, used him to bring about this process, and for that we are grateful. And you have also given the Holy Spirit to us, that he indwells us and he fills us with your word. And it is through his ministry that we are able to understand the word that he has revealed through the apostles and prophets. So, Father, we pray now that as we study these things and reflect upon them, that you may give us a little greater insight into the ministries of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are continuing our study in Ephesians 4, 3 through 5. And as we come to this short section of verses, there is an emphasis on the role of God the Holy Spirit. And so I am taking a little time to review us on what the, these ministries of God the Holy Spirit are for us today. In Ephesians 4, 3 through 4, we are told uh, literally to be diligent or make an effort to keep or maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, the unity of the Spirit refers to the fact that there is a unity that is established by God the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation because of what he does in placing us in the body of Christ, and that that is the foundation of our unity. It is not something that we create on our own or that we have to produce on our own but we are mandated to make an effort to maintain that unity, to be diligent to maintain that unity. And this idea of unity is significant throughout this section of Ephesians. For example, if you go to the next three verses, there's an emphasis on our unity. Seven things are mentioned. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is above 
all and through all and in you all. Unity. Let your eyes move down the page to verse 13. Verse 13 is completing a sentence, a purpose clause that is stated, or an explanatory clause that is stated in verse 12, that these spiritual gifts of verse 11 are given for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ till, that indicates a progression, till we all come to a unity of the faith. So we have a unity the instant that we are saved, but we are in or, the way in which we are to maintain that unity is by growing together in our knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. That's not really perfection in terms of sinlessness, but perfection in the sense of maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should not be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. What does that produce? That produces disunity. And we certainly see that on every street corner today where there are many churches who are basically practicing some form of heresy or another in our world today. So this is the focus. And then you go to verse 15, that the result, uh, the way in which we grow is speaking the truth that is what the Bible teaches in love and that we may grow up in all things unto him who is the head. So you have this thing going on here that is positional, that unity that we have automatically, but we have to grow. We have to learn the word and we have to study the word in order to be able to keep that unity and not be tossed about by winds of doctrine which destroy the unity, and that we are to grow up in all things to be like Christ. That gives you the broad structure of what is being said here in this part of Ephesians chapter 4. So last time, as we looked at verse 3 and then on into verse 4, that there's one body, that is the body of Christ, which is formed by God the Holy Spirit, and one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, uh, that is just as you were called in one hope. So that one hope is related to our calling. That is this new position we have in Christ that is focused on hope, but it is related to this one body God the Holy Spirit is forming and his other ministry. So uh, it's important to understand these various ministries of God the Holy Spirit. And frankly, there's, as I mentioned at the introduction to the Lord's table earlier, that that's one area of doctrine about which there has been so much confusion over the centuries The role of the Holy Spirit is yet another. And while there are some who would, uh, some church historians who would label the uh, 20th century the uh, time of the Spirit because of the rise of the emphasis on the Spirit, and there's some truth in that, but unfortunately it leads to the confusion of the charismatic and Pentecostal movements in the 20th century, which really follows a pseudo-spirit and has led to a lot of division 
and a lot of of disunity because of their misunderstanding of the role of the Spirit today. But that's not unusual. Most Christians throughout the church age have misunderstood that. When I was in Dallas Seminary in the late 80s working on my doctorate, one of the courses that I took was a seminar on pneumatology, on the study of God the Holy Spirit. And so one of the um, requirements for the course was that we were to read at least a 1,000 pages in external reading that would uh, be related to the course content. So what I decided to do as I read, had read here and there, I always read that there were two books written in church history that were considered the best, that you were not educated in the ministries of God the Holy Spirit unless you read these two books. And the first one was a volume out of a 15-volume set by John Owens, a Puritan pastor, and also the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell during the time of the Protectorate in in England, just simply called that volume was simply called the Holy Spirit. Then there was a second volume, written at the end of the um, at the end of the nineteenth century, uh, called also called the work of uh, the Holy Spirit by Abraham Kuyper. Both very Reformed, very Calvinistic theologians. And the one thing that struck me was what was not covered in either one of these massive works on the Holy Spirit. One was the baptism of the Spirit, the baptism by the Spirit, and the other was the filling by the Spirit. Neither topic were even mentioned in these massive works that were supposed to be the uh, definitive works on the Holy Spirit. So that is w- one reason that you have had such an absence of teaching at the end of the 19th century that led to such heresy. Heresy is usually born of ignorance, and ignorance of the word uh, develop about around the Holy Spirit during the 20th century. So last time we talked about this role of the Holy Spirit introducing the baptism by the Spirit that, and its relationship to the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12.13, where Paul says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, or have all been made to drink into one Spirit. This is a crucial central passage, and we'll spend a little more time on that today. So when, you, when we think about what we have in Christ, our exalted position in Christ, we break it down into two categories here. The eternal realities that are ours because we are in Christ, and they can never be taken from us, and these are all given to us at the instant that we trust in Christ as Savior. And the temporal realities relate to our day-to-day experience. Some days we walk with the Lord, some days we walk on our own, and hopefully we uh, recognize that more and more frequently and deal with the sin in our life because we are, as Paul says, and as we'll study in Ephesians 5, we are children of light. So we have a white circle here. This is our position in Christ. And we enter into Christ through the baptism by 
God the Holy Spirit at the instant of our salvation. That is our legal position before Christ, and there are significant, vital aspects to the baptism by the Holy Spirit that shape our entire spiritual life. And yet so often Christians are ignorant of these things. In terms of our daily walk, we are to walk by the Holy Spirit, and we are to be filled by the Holy Spirit. He fills us with his word. And so as we are children of light in our position, we are to walk in the light, and that is the circle on the right. We are to be walking by God the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we are the call. This is our exalted position. So we have to understand this in light of these ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. Last week, we looked at two aspects that are related to unbelievers, two aspects related to unbelievers. The first is the restraining ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which is identified in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where Paul tells the Thessalonians that at this present time, uh, there is a restraining going on. And he says, and now you know what is restraining. And the neuter there indicates Holy Spirit because the word spirit, pneuma, is a, in the neuter gender, uh, that he may be revealed in his own time. And so you have a neuter shifting to a masculine, which often happens talking about the Holy Spirit because of the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 7 we read, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Have you noticed that lately? This mystery of lawlessness. The other day I read an article, I think it was written by a congressman, and he was making the comment that, that we don't need new laws. We have thousands of excellent laws on the book, but we have become a nation that no longer believes in the rule of law because we have judges and we have congressmen, state leaders, federal leaders who ignore the laws of the land, left and right. Republicans and conservatives are ignorant of the law of the land, especially the basic law of the land, which is the Constitution. This is the definition of lawlessness. So Paul is saying that the mystery of lawlessness is a major characteristic of this church age, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. I don't want your thinking to get too distracted, but just imagine what it would be like if God the Holy Spirit weren't restraining Congress. Okay, stop thinking about that. (laughs) So that is what we see. This is the role of the Holy Spirit, and it is part of God's common grace that God the Holy Spirit restrains evil and lawlessness during this church age in order to provide stable environments for evangelism, spiritual growth, and missions. It is, I know this is going to break some hearts, but it is not to to provide stable environments so you can take good vacations and travel everywhere. It is always about evangelism, spiritual growth, and the expansion of the church through witnessing. The Holy Spirit restrains through government, through the presence of the church, through thwarting Satan and his designs, and through individual consciences and providential 
prevention of the evil plans of human beings. So evil is being restrained so that there is stability for the proclamation of the gospel. But there are many nations in this world where that is not happening. You have numerous countries in Africa where there is such chaos and turmoil and everyday Christians' lives are at risk. Uh, India is a subcontinent, but India at once had a thriving, solid um, expansion of Christianity with uh, uh, missionaries there, but that has been blocked a lot lately, and it is uh, number 10 on the list of the uh, nations most hostile to Christianity. And then you have wonderful places like Saudi Arabia and Iran and China and North Korea. And those are horrible, horrible places of spiritual darkness. Uh, but God the Holy Spirit is restraining evil so that it is not nearly as bad as it could be or will be in the tribulation. Then we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit is convicting unbelievers. In John 16, 8 through 11, says that when the Holy Spirit comes, which is in the church age, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. Our Lord said, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then he explains that of sin because they do not believe in me. They don't believe in Jesus, so they have not had uh, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That's the only way that sin is personally dealt with or covered. Christ paid the penalty at the cross, but in order for that to be applied to us in terms of being transformed from spiritual death to spiritual life, and from being unrighteous to having the imputation of Christ's righteousness, then that is all based upon belief. And so they must believe in me. John 16.10, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and see you no more by what he accomplishes on the cross, and then we'll study it later in this chapter, his ascension to the right hand of the Father that is related to the present uh, work where his righteousness is imputed to us for salvation. And then judgment, because at the cross, the ruler of this world, that is Satan, is judged. Now, the first work for believers is regeneration. Now, these things that I'm getting ready to talk about, regeneration and indwelling and baptism by the Spirit and the sealing by the Spirit, the filling by the, uh, by the Spirit, while that is temporary, all of these things happen simultaneously at the instant of salvation. We talk about them in a certain logical order, but they all happen simultaneously at the instant of salvation. So we are born again because we are born spiritually dead, dead in our trespasses and sins, as we studied earlier in Ephesians 2.1. And that spiritual death is separation from the life of God, Ephesians 4.18. We are alienated from the life of God from the instant we are saved, but the, I mean, from the instant we're born, but the instant we're saved, God gives us eternal life, his life, and so we are made alive again. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In John 1, 12 and 13, 
we're told as many as received him, a synonym for trusting in Christ, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be called the children of God to those who believe in his name. Believe is never qualified in the scriptures. It's not true belief, genuine belief, sincere belief. It is simply belief. You either believe or you don't believe. And once we trust in Christ, we believe, we understand that he died on the cross for our sins, and we believe that that is true, then at that instant God regenerates us. It is God who does it. It is not something that we can do. It's not based on where we're born. It's not based on our ethnicity. It's not where we're, who we're born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but it is God who does it. We can't will it. Our volition's involved in that we believe Christ died on the cross, but we can't will ourselves to be born again. It is all a work of God. Titus 3.5 says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, we started this last time, what the Bible teaches about the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And as I pointed out in the introduction, something that has generated a lot of confusion for some Christians, a lot of Christians, actually, in the 20th century. Yesterday, or Friday, actually, I went through this material for the pastor's group that um, I lead on Friday mornings because I knew that there were several pastors who were having were struggling with some of the finer points related to Greek grammar and other things, so we had to go through this. And one of the suggestions, which I thought was a good good suggestion, was it would be helpful to give the definition at the beginning instead of at the end. And that's important. It's like I like to read the last chapter in a book to understand where the author is going and and his summary of what he said so that as I read through it, I can get it. So we're going to start with the definition. The baptism by means of the Holy Spirit is the work of Christ, whereby at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify the believer with his death, burial, and resurrection, and places the believer into the body of Christ, the church, as the Holy Spirit builds a new temple, which is the body of Christ. That's the short form. We see from the gospel passages that John the Baptist says, the one who comes after me, he will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit. So it's very clear that he states, and it is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts 1, that Christ is the one who performs the act of baptism. So Christ performs the act of the baptism by using the Holy Spirit to identify the believer with his death, burial, and resurrection. That's Romans 6, 3 through 6. And the Holy Spirit places the believer into the body of Christ. So we're identified with Christ. We're placed into Christ. That breaks the power, as the hymn says, breaks the power of canceled sin. In those short, that short phrase That's a brilliant summation by that hymn writer. Sin was canceled at the cross. 
but we still have a sin nature, and throughout all of the Old Testament, it was still a tyrant for every believer. It is not until you have the baptism by the Spirit that that tyranny is stopped. doesn't mean the sin nature is gone, that we don't still struggle with the sin nature. That's obvious we all do, but it, we, it, it's only a tyrant in our life if we choose to let it be. And unfortunately, we all choose to let it be way too often. So that's what the what happens with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it's integral to the Holy Spirit's work as we've studied in Ephesians in building a new temple, which is the body of Christ, and it's called, remember, it's called a new body, it is called a new man, it is called a new building, and it is called a new temple. So it uses all of those different metaphors to express it. So we're back to our chart. We are placed in Christ through the baptism by the Holy Spirit, and the central passages are Matthew 3.11 and 1 Corinthians 12.13. There are in all seven passages that are significant for understanding this. So back to where we started earlier, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, 1 Corinthians 12.13. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves are free and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So the word baptism, baptizo, baptizo is the Greek word, and it was not translated, it was simply transliterated into English. And it's very interesting because you have people that as soon as they see the word baptism, they immediately think of water. And yet, and they also will define it as immersion. But it is not necessarily immersion. Immersion is not at the center of its meaning. The technical term for that, it's not part of its core semantic value. That means... It's an additional idea picked up in context. It's not part of what baptizo means. Now, it is true that that comes from the word bapto, which means to dip or plunge or immerse, but the verb has different applications. And so we recognize that because as we study Scripture, that we recognize that there are eight different kinds of baptism. There are three wet baptisms. John the Baptist's baptism, where people came down because they heard his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so they wanted to be identified with repentance. And that's pictured as cleansing. So the role of the water is as a picture of being washed or cleansed in preparation for the kingdom. So there's John the Baptist's baptism. Then there's Jesus' baptism. Jesus came to John, and John said, I ought to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, no, no, you are to baptize me. Because this was not a baptism for repentance. Jesus had nothing to repent of. It was a baptism to show the identification of Jesus with the plan of God and the inauguration of his ministry. So this is Jesus' baptism. And the third wet baptism is Christian baptism. And that is when a person who has trusted in Christ is ready to be baptized. That means he has to understand its significance. And sadly, it is not explained very well in most churches. 
it is that, that what I'm teaching you on the baptism by the Spirit is an abstract doctrine that is difficult to understand, and it is to be simplified by the imagery of water baptism and should be explained that way. The two are integrally connected. That's why Paul refers to really both of them when he says one baptism, because the water baptism teaches positional truth, which is what the real baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Now, last week I read this quote. I'm going to read it again because it shows the difference between the word bapto and baptizo. And it's talking about making pickles or pickled vegetables. First, the vegetables should be dipped into boiling water. That's bapto. Clearly, dipping it is necessary. But it doesn't change the nature of the vegetable. The second word, baptizo, is used when he says, and then baptized in the vinegar solution. Now, that's what changes a pickle from a cucumber to a pickle in English, but there's lots of other things. You can change a jalapeno from a raw jalapeno to a pickled jalapeno and many other vegetables as well. Does that mean it's immersed yet? But that's not the main idea. That's not the focal point. The focal point is it becomes something new. It is changed. Now, we see how that's related in these dry baptisms. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says that the Israelites are uh, baptized by means of the cloud and the sea. When John baptized, he said, I baptize you by means of water. The one who comes after me will baptize you by means of the Spirit. By means of water doesn't mean that they were placed into the water, which is what a lot of Baptists will do to translate that. It's not in, the preposition is not into. It is by means of. It's showing the instrument that is used to affect that uh, ritual baptism. Baptism into Moses says that they were baptized, same preposition in the Greek, in, by the cloud and the sea. They didn't get wet. They didn't get wet because they got into a foggy cloud. They didn't get wet because they got into the Red Sea. So it doesn't have, they didn't get into anything. So it doesn't have to do with immersion, and it doesn't have to do with getting wet or damp or just slightly foggy. So we have to understand that this is critical to understand that you can't build doctrines off of words by abusing their, their, their uh, semantics. Baptism into Noah, the only ones who got wet were the people who didn't get in the ark. They're identified with the ark. They're identified with Noah, and so they are saved. There's the baptism of the cross. Christ doesn't get wet. He is identified with our sins and pays the penalty for our sins. There's the baptism uh, by the Holy Spirit, which is also dry, and baptism by fire, which is dry. So so if you don't have an immersion in in these. So bapto means or denotes dipping, plunging, or immersing something into a liquid, and baptizo suggests a more figurative sense that one thing is identified by with something else to indicate a change. We become at that instant a new creature in Christ when we are in Christ. That's what the baptism by the Holy Spirit does, is it makes us a new creature in Christ. 
Now, we have these phrases that we often use, baptism of the Spirit, which never is expressed that way in the Greek. The of the would be expressed by a genitive, and that never happens in the Greek with the word baptism. You have baptism with, baptism in, and baptism by the Spirit all translate the exact same phrase in the Greek. One of the reasons for that was when you're in the Gospels and they're all translated with, which indicates either association or instrument, they're all translated with. One group of translators translated all of the Gospels and Acts. But then when you're over in Ephesians and you're in uh, 1 Corinthians, the Pauline epistles were translated by another group. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, they use the word by, which it also indicates instrumentality, but in English, the English by and the English with have other issues, which we'll talk about in a minute. Some of them translated in, which is what's called a locative meaning. Locative means location. It's the idea of putting something into something. It's into a new location, and and that's a bad trans- translation. So we have this. Our, our opening statement in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we have two critical prepositions here, in, which is translated by one spirit, correctly. It's indicating by means of, and then into one body, and that's our destination, that new body in Christ. Notice here with Matthew three eleven, it also has the same, uh, same preposition, but it translates it, as with in all three cases in Matthew 3.11. So the question is, are there two baptisms, one with the Spirit and one by the Spirit? See, what happened with English readers at the end of the 19th century in what is known as holiness movement, which morphed, some of it morphed into the uh, Pentecostal movement, they said there's two baptisms. There's a baptism for unity of the church. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for every believer. And then there's a baptism that Christ performs in the Gospels and Acts, which is for power, and not everybody gets that. So they've got two baptisms. That's part of the problem. And all the way through here, in all the other Gospel passages, you see that uh, that preposition, the Greek preposition in, is translated uniformly using the English preposition with. So we have to understand what, what's going on here. So when John the Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water, and then he says, he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, Who performs the action of baptizing? Think about this question. Who performs the action? In the phrase, I indeed baptize you with water, the action is performed by the I, which refers to John the Baptist. And in the second time, it is he shall baptize you. John the Baptist is speaking, and so he is talking about Christ. Let's break this down just a little more. Here we have Matthew 3.14. And this I use this for a specific reason. Uh, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, I need to be baptized by you. 
So we have uh, the verb is a passive verb like we have in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And in the English, it's followed by the, pre- uh, the preposition by. I need to be baptized by you, okay? I'm getting ahead of myself, so just break it down simply. In this sentence, who performs the baptism, the I or the you? It's the you. It's a passive construction. The term that we use for that grammatically is the agent is the one who performs the act in a passive verb. So in the uh, first verse, the him, Jesus came to be baptized by him. He came to be baptized by Jesus, uh, excuse me, by John the Baptist. In the second sentence, the one we just looked at, Matthew 3, 14, I need to be baptized by you. John is saying that um, Jesus needs to be the one to baptize him. In both cases, we have a passive verb. The one who is performing the action is indicated with the English preposition by. Now, let me tell you where I'm going with this. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, For we have all been baptized by one spirit. You see the problem. When we look at by one spirit, in English it is typical that to indicate the one who performs the action of a passive verb, it is expressed with a by preposition. So people thought, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, the Holy Spirit does the baptizing. Wrong. It's, an, it's a misunderstanding of grammar. So, to review, grammatically, the one who performs the action of a passive voice verb is the agent. The one who performs the action even of an active voice verb is still the agent, but there is the grammatical subject. So, in English, we use the preposition by when there is a passive verb to indicate the one who performs the action. So it looks like we've all been baptized by one spirit, that the spirit did the action. When Matthew writes, Jesus came to be baptized by him, him would perform the action of baptism. So when that's compared to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it looks like the by indicates the one who does the baptizing. The problem is, in Greek, when you have a passive verb, the agent is indicated with the preposition hupa, not with the preposition in. And therein lies the problem, a failure to understand the Greek grammar correctly. So 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by means of one spirit, it's the same language that John used in Matthew 3:11 or 3:13 that the one who comes after me will baptize you in numity by means of the Spirit. Paul doesn't change the the verbiage. He uses the exact same verbiage, but he doesn't mention who's performing the action. It's Christ still. You have to keep all all the white eggs have to go together, all the blue eggs have to go together, all the red eggs go together. And by that I mean you have to keep all of the phrases in numity have to mean the same thing and have to be translated the same way. But when they're not translated the same way, you miss the point that they're all talking about the same thing. And that is that 
the Holy Spirit is used to bring about this this change. As in the initial Matthew 3.11, it's stated the same way in Mark and Luke and Acts. As for me, John said, I baptize, active voice verb, I baptize you by means of water. The preposition in plus the dative of the word for water. And then he says in a parallel sentence, he, meaning Jesus, will baptize you in the future. Jesus performs the action. He's the subject. He's the agent of the verb. He will baptize you, and then you have the exact same preposition in numity by means of the Spirit. So if you're going to translate it by means of the Spirit in the Gospels, you have to translate it by means of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 because everything it's like a formula. You're going to have a performer of the action. You're going to have the action, which is baptism. You have the means stated by an in clause, and you have the uh, destination, the change related by an ace clause. So in Matthew 3.11, the subject of the active voice verb is I, that is John the Baptist in the first instance, and it's he, Jesus Christ, the second time. So it is Jesus Christ who performs the action of baptism by means of the Spirit. So literally, you should translate Matthew 3.11, where John says, I, on the one hand, baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit, with being synonym for by means of. Acts 1.5, the same language, for John baptized you with water, that is, by means of water, but you will be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. Same preposition, same language, always keep it consistent. This is the control passage in 1 Corinthians 10.2 when it's talking about the Israelites because there's no water involved. And there Paul writes all, that is, all the Israelites coming out of Exodus, uh, Egypt were baptized. It's a passive, so it's just like the the word in First Corinthians twelve thirteen. It's a passive voice. It doesn't tell you who does the baptism. All were baptized into Moses, just as we are baptized into Christ, or as John the Baptist said, he baptized by means of water into repentance. And they are baptized into Moses by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. But they never get into the Red Sea and they never get into the cloud. It is their identification. The cloud represents the Shekinah glory of God that is leading the Israelites through the, through the desert. And the water represents the Red Sea. And so by identifying themselves, by following God's plan, following the cloud... And by going through the dry land that God created, separating the waters of the Red Sea, they're identified uh, with Moses and Moses' faith. Now, we'll get into just one more time. English grammar, simple sentence. John hit the ball with the bat. John hit the ball by the bat. Active voice verb. John is the subject. The verb is hit. The instrument that's used to hit the ball is the bat. So the 
if you write it with a passive voice verb, the ball is the grammatical subject. It was hit by John. He is the performer of the action, and therefore he's the agent. The ball he hit. The ball was hit by John. I don't know how the ball got in there a second time. The ball was hit by John with the bat. The bat is the means. The bat doesn't perform, you know, the hitting except as the instrument used by the agent. Now in Greek, by John would have the hupa or maybe dia as the preposition, but never in. So you cannot translate or interpret 1 Corinthians 12:13 as indicating this it's a baptism performed by the spirit. It is a baptism performed by Christ where he uses the spirit. Now all this is just important to make sure we understand what's going on. The significance of this I'll get to in a minute. So two more charts to help you understand this. We I messed up with this the other day, too. Okay, so what we have is the one who performs the actions in the first column. The means is the second column, and the uh, destination or the new state is the third column. So you have the subject, John, baptizes by means of water, that's the instrument, and the destination is the new state is repentance in in Matthew 3.11. In regard to Jesus, the parallel is Jesus will baptize by means of the Spirit, and it doesn't state into the body of Christ. So you don't have to have all the elements there. In 1 Corinthians 10.2, with Moses, they were baptized into Moses, but it doesn't tell us who did the identification, who performs the action. In 1 Corinthians 12.13, it doesn't tell us who performed the action. But it does give us the means, the cloud and the sea in 1 Corinthians 10.2, and into Moses uh, as the destination of the new state. 1 Corinthians 12.13, it doesn't state who does it, who performs the action, but it is by the Spirit and into the body. So we have these three categories, the agent, the means, and the identification is uh, into the new body. So we see the parallel there. This is like a a formula. You have four parts to the formula, but not all parts have to be stated in order to recognize the role. So when the one who performs the action isn't stated, the means is still stated the same way, and that's by that in clause. So John the Baptist uses water to identify the person with repentance. Jesus Christ uses the Holy Spirit. Oh, mess that up. John the Baptist uses water to identify the person with repentance. Jesus Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify the individual with himself, with his death, burial, resurrection uh, into his body. So that shows the parallel. There's one baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. Christ performs the baptism. The instrument he uses is the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is 
is impersonal. If I say, God used my parents to train me as a child, I would use that, the parents would be in that, um, in that instrumental case, and some would call it the impersonal, but they're persons, okay? But God used them that way. So the, God, God uses the, I'll show you a couple of passages in a minute as we wrap up. The new condition is into the body of Christ, where we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, and the result is we're made a new creature in Christ. In John 14, Jesus told his disciples, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. He, the, the helper. And then in John 14:26, he ex- identifies the helper, and he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name... He will teach you all things. So God the Father is using the Holy Spirit as the instrument for teaching us. In John fifteen twenty six, Jesus expands on it and says, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father. See, Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit to accomplish certain things. The Holy Spirit here is seen as the instrument that Jesus is using uh, in maturing believers, sanctifying believers. John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go away. The Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. So Jesus is using the Holy Spirit to accomplish many different things in our lives. So back to our definition. The baptism by means of the Holy Spirit is the work of Christ, whereby at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify the believer with his death, burial, and resurrection and places the believer into the body of Christ. At that instant, we're a new creature in Christ. And at, through this, God the Holy Spirit is building a new temple, which is the body of Christ. Galatians three twenty seven and 28 talks about this. Paul says, For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. And the result is that there are now no spiritual distinctions based on ethnicity, based on sex, based on uh, economic status bond or free. We are all have equal access in contrast to the fact that under the law, only male Jews could have access cl- close to the holy place in the temple. Women could go no for- further than the court of the women. Gentiles could go no further than the court of the Gentiles. So only the priest and ultimately only the high priest had access to God, but now we all have access to God because we are in Christ. So the point of this in Romans 6 is Paul saying, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That's the ace clause here that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's the point of all this, 
is it breaks the power of cancel sin. We can now walk in newness of life, understanding what happened at that instant of salvation where we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So it's at that moment that when we're identified with Christ that we it happens simultaneously with regeneration, that we're identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ so that we become a new creature in Christ. And if that doesn't excite you, then you need to wake up spiritually. I mean, that's what the first three chapters of Ephesians is all about, is understanding all of these wonderful blessings that we have and getting into the details is important so we don't make mistakes. I mean, the problem with a lot of dispensationalists and a lot of the people that you and I heard growing up and in our spiritual life is they, try, they knew there was only one baptism, but they couldn't figure out how to express it. And the other day with the pastors, I went through quotes from five or six, Ryrie, Walbert, Pentecost, you name them, I, I, I quoted them. Because they always reasoned theologically, they never understood the role of the prepositions. Now, I didn't come up with this. I got this from one of my Greek professors at Dallas. I'm not smart enough to come up with this. But, but it, it really solves the problem. There's one baptism. And now we understand that, and it, it enables us to avoid getting caught up into various winds of doctrine and the false teaching about two different baptisms, one for power, one for unity, and all of the other things, and learning how to biblically express it. Because if you were a, an original Christian who spoke Greek, you saw all, those, all five uses of that phrase as meaning the exact same thing, and you weren't confused. But we get confused because English translators use different prepositions, making it sound like they were different acts. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. It's not always easy to grasp some of these uh, fine details about grammar, but it's important to understand exactly what is said and what it means and for us to understand what a glorious thing it was at that instant that we trusted Christ as Savior, that we were identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, that Christ as the head of the body used the Holy Spirit to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection, to bring us into union with him in his body, one with him, that we might have so many, many other blessings as a new creature in Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening to this message, perhaps never truly understood the gospel, not sure if they're saved, that by going through this, they will understand that there's a lot that happened at the instant of our trusting Christ. And part of that is the giving of eternal life not because we're good, not because we've done good things, but because Christ paid the penalty for our sins, and we have simply accepted that as a free gift. And this is all part of that package. We pray that we might understand this as we continue to think about it and talk about it, that it may become clear to us, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.